I am Brian Smith, and I am Pastor Emeritus of Grace Community Church. I'm probably the only one this morning that has gained unwanted pounds since COVID-19 quarantine began. It's amazed me how much exercise and extra fries sound alike. Even the buttons on my Levi jeans have started social distancing from each other. My goal for the year 2020 was to lose 10 pounds. I only have 25 pounds to go. With that confession out of the way, I am privileged to be able to speak to you again this morning. Over 40 years ago, Grace Community Church has been known as a church that believes and teaches the Bible. It is literally true from Genesis chapter 1 to Revelation chapter 22. Last Sunday, I told you that I love the Bible and I live by the Bible. The Bible determined who I dated, the Bible determined who I married, and the Bible determined how I would live. You might want to know, well, how would the Bible determine who I dated? Well, it's simply this. I didn't want to date anyone who wasn't as passionate about Jesus Christ as I was. I wanted to date someone who had a common interest in the Lord Jesus Christ. I wanted to date someone who wanted to serve the Lord Jesus Christ because I eventually wanted to marry someone who loved the Lord Jesus Christ, who wanted to serve Jesus Christ. And so I never dated anyone who wasn't a follower of Jesus Christ and I was fortunate 48 years ago to marry a woman who was as passionate about serving the Lord Jesus Christ as I am. And I've always wanted to live for Jesus Christ after I did my graduate work at Long Beach State, earning my life teaching credential, I taught in the Long Beach Unified School District for five years. I love teaching public school. I love being a witness to my students, to their parents, and to the other teachers. And I was passionate about it. I wanted to spend the rest of my life doing that. But there were some men in my church who I'd known for a number of years who were my spiritual mentors. And constantly they were telling me that they really sensed God's leading for me to go into the ministry. And so I began to pray about it. And eventually, after five years of teaching school, God changed my heart. And uh, so I didn't really change professions. I just changed curriculum. I decided to become a pastor. So I began seminary while at the same time going on staff of my home church as an associate pastor. And so for the first five years of my adult life, I was a teacher in the Long Beach Unified School District. And then for 40 years, beginning in uh, 1977, I was a pastor. So the Lord determined who I dated. The Lord determined who I would marry. And the Lord would determine uh, how I would live. And I am thankful for that. I've never regretted one day. One of my favorite passages in the Bible is Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. And there we read, Trust the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths. I've been a Christian for 58 years. I think I learned this verse within my first year of being a Christian, and I've always remembered it. About serving the Lord with all my heart not leaning on my own understanding, trying to acknowledge God in all that I do. Now, have I been faithful in all those years? No, I've let God down many times, but he's never let me down. And he's always drawn me back to serving him and honoring him and 
doing things that are pleasing to him. My encouragement to you is that you would do the same thing. Because if you want to live a life that's exciting and fulfilling and meaningful, you'll find it in this book. So read the book. Obey the book. You'll never be disappointed. Having been quarantined for five months because of COVID-19, most of us have experienced some level of distress. In fact, the inspiration behind this three-part series came from some Christians who were asking if this present crisis is actually the beginning of the tribulation. Well, I answered that question last week. No, it's not. We know that because of what Jesus said to his apostles as recorded in John 14. The night before Jesus' crucifixion, as you might remember, he gathered his apostles in an upper room. And they had a meal together. And during that meal, Jesus told them that he would not be setting up his kingdom at that time. In fact, he told them this, that he was going to die. Well, you can imagine and understand how distressed they might have become. And that's why Jesus said what he did here at the beginning of John 14, verses 1 through 3. He said, let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places, for I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. In this passage, Jesus, for the very first time, promised that he would someday return and rescue his followers. He would then take them to heaven. But what is the timing of that return? And why would it be necessary for Jesus to rescue his followers? Well, that is a subject of my series, Let Not Your Heart Be Troubled. But before we begin today, your heart might be troubled for a variety of reasons. It may be because of COVID-19 virus, wearing masks whenever you're outside your home, six feet distancing in every public place, or it could be the downturn of our economy and your loss of jobs. I heard someone say one time that recession is when other people lose their jobs and depression is when you lose your job. Well, whether you're suffering a recession or depression, the loss of jobs are very troubling for those of you who have to pay your rent or your house payment and put food on your table. And then we see on TV, the riots in our major cities of our own country. And those are troubling, aren't they? Or it could be just problems in your home after being quarantined for five months. I understand that. Several weeks ago, I was walking by myself early in the morning praying. Well, at the same time, I was experiencing some anxiety about something. I really don't remember what. Yes, Pastor Emeritus experience anxiety at times. And you might say, wait a minute, pastors never experience anxiety. I've known pastors who never are concerned about anything. They're, nothing troubles them. Well, they're lying. They're not telling you the truth. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. So they're either lying or they're not a person. Take your pick. So anyway, I was concerned about something and I was praying about it. And as I was walking down the sidewalk, I looked down and there was a dead sparrow on the ground. 
And immediately, I remembered what Jesus said in Matthew 10, that as God the Father knows when even a sparrow falls. And I thought, you know, if God knows even when a sparrow falls, he knows all about things that might be troubling me, and he's certainly capable of taking care of them. Well, let me make a confession. I don't know whether it was really a sparrow or not. I don't know one bird from the next. It wasn't an ostrich or a pelican. It wasn't that. So it was a small bird, and God knew that it had died. God's promise to me is the same promise to you. Jesus said at the end of John 14, in verse 27, My peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be afraid. Let me read that again. Listen. Jesus said, My peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be afraid. Even during COVID-19, even during quarantine, even when you have to wear a mask and distance six feet from each other, even when you don't have a job to go to anymore and your kids are being homeschooled and you don't understand the work, you can't even help them. Jesus says, I can give you peace even in that time. Last week, my sermon title was, Are We in the Tribulation? And I said to you that we're not in the Tribulation, but I did point out to you three evidences that God's clock is ticking down. God's clock is ticking down. Three evidences of that. Evidence number one, the restoration of Israel as a nation. The restoration of Israel as a nation. After 2,600 years, Israel became a sovereign nation again in 1948, just 72 years ago. You see, Israel must become a sovereign nation in order for the tribulation to begin. But Israel becoming a nation doesn't begin the tribulation. It just must be a nation when the tribulation begins. And Israel is a nation today. And that's why God's clock is ticking down and we can hear the ticking because Israel now is prepared for the events of the book of Revelation, beginning at Revelation chapter 6. The second evidence that God's clock is ticking down is a one-world government. A one-world government. You see, the government during the tribulation will be ruled by one man. It'll be a universal government. The whole world will be ruled by one man. Now, there's not one man ruling the world today. Boy, is the world primed and ready for that man someone who will solve the problems in Europe and Asia and America. We need someone like that. People even said, boy, if we just had somebody who could solve these problems. Well, we don't have that person yet, but someday there will be that person. The third evidence that God's clock is ticking down is a one-world religion, a one-world religion. You see, the only thing holding back a one-world religion today is not Hinduism, Buddhism, Islam, or Judaism. The only thing holding it back today is evangelical, Bible-believing Christians. And so those Christians have to be removed in order for a one-world religion to take over. And they will be removed. It's only a rapture away. 
And that'll be my subject and my final message next Sunday, the rapture. But this morning, my topic is the Antichrist. The Antichrist. Please turn your Bibles to Revelation chapter 6. Revelation chapter 6 through uh, 19 describe the tribulation. And here is how the tribulation will begin. Revelation chapter 6, beginning at verse 1. John is speaking, and he says, Then I saw when the Lamb, that's Jesus Christ, broke one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures saying, as with a voice of thunder, Come. I looked, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and went out conquering and to conquer. The seven-year tribulation is portrayed using three metaphors. The metaphors are seals, trumpets, and bulls, which describe the events leading up to the second coming of Jesus Christ. Now, by seals here, the book of Revelation is not referring to a marine mammal. It's not the kind of seal that's being referred to here. Several weeks ago, I took my wife for several nights to Dana Point. It's a small little motel right in the harbor. It's not very expensive. It's not been upgraded for the last 40 years. But we like the location. Location, location, location. We like where it's situated. And we are on the second floor. We had a, a room with a balcony so that we could leave the sliding glass doors open at night and we could hear uh, the, the animals or whatever and we could uh, feel the ocean breeze. Well, first morning we woke up, I heard some harbor seals barking uh, nearby. My wife leaned over and turned to me and she says, isn't it nice to hear birds singing? Isn't it nice to hear birds singing? I'm not making that up. Obviously, she had been quarantined too long. No, the seals here is referring to the books that they had back in those days. They weren't like this book that's been bound with pages. They were scrolls, and you'd roll the scrolls up and roll them out. And when you'd roll the scroll all the way up, you would seal it with some melted wax and let it dry where the edges are, and then that would seal it. And so in the book of Revelation that John sees, there's a scroll that has one seal holding the book, and then as you unveil the book and remove that seal, there's a second seal, and then a third seal, and then a fourth seal, and then a seventh seal, and that seventh seal are the seven trumpets, which refer to judgments from God, like trumpet blasts. And the seventh trumpet are the seven bowls of God's wrath. And so the progression in the book of Revelation, it's real simple to remember, is that nothing happens without the removing of a seal, the blowing of a trumpet, or the pouring of a bowl. The seventh seal are the seven trumpets. The seventh trumpet are the seven bowls of God's wrath. All of it takes place within seven years. Well, the removing of the first four seals is described in Revelation chapters 6, 1 through 8. They picture four men riding different colored horses. In fact, this passage is sometimes referred to as the four horsemen of the apocalypse. The first man is riding a white horse, he's wearing a crown, and he has a bow with no arrows, which means that 
this man will become the leader of the world prior to the tribulation through peaceful means. He has a bow, but no arrows. He takes over the world somehow, some way, through peaceful means. Of course, we know that the man riding that white horse is none other than the Antichrist. The Antichrist. In fact, the Antichrist is a well-chosen title for this man for it describes his true nature, which is against Christ. He is against Christ. Turn with me in your Bibles to 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2. And there in verse 18, John says, Children, it is the last hour, and just as you heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have appeared. From this we know that it is the last hour. Here John says that the Antichrist is coming, and then he says many Antichrists have come. What does he mean by that? What does he mean many Antichrists have appeared? Well, skip down to chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. And there John explains. He says in verse 1 of chapter 4, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this we know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, of which you have heard that is, it is coming, and now it is already in the world. Here, John describes the spirit of the Antichrist, a precursor to the Antichrist coming. And what is the spirit of the Antichrist? Denying that Jesus, God's eternal Son, came to earth in human flesh that he is 100% human and 100% God. That is the spirit of the Antichrist. And the spirit of the Antichrist will prepare the world for the Antichrist. And of course we see, if we look around, the evidence of the spirit of Antichrist seen even today, even more so today, probably than any other time in the world. When, when you see people who are supposedly having a peaceful protest, but they're looting stores and burning buildings down and beating up citizens on the sidewalk, that's the spirit of the Antichrist. When you see people saying to cities, condemn the police and defund the police departments, when they say that it's safer with no policemen than it is with policemen, that policemen are the problem and not criminals, that's the spirit of the Antichrist. When you see gay marriage and homosexuality and transgender being put upon all of us through the media and every other venue, that's the spirit of the Antichrist. You know that Walt Disney has a new animated movie coming out? It's titled Finding Dory, and it, it features a transgender stingray. Disney has a cartoon movie coming out with a transgender stingray. Think about that the next time you want to go to Disneyland and spend your money there, or even watch a Disney movie. That's the spirit of the Antichrist. Now what I'm saying is not very politically correct, is it? Some places I would be booed out of the room, but since the auditorium is empty, I have no fear of that right now. All of you are watching me on some uh, medium, a computer or some other means, and so I feel safe. Because what I just said is not politically correct, but what I said is what the Bible says on this and many other subjects, 
and God has never been politically correct. 2,700 years ago, Isaiah the prophet said about this time we're in today, Isaiah the prophet said, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness. That was written 2,700 years ago. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness. When people scream about defunding the police and getting rid of the police departments and spitting in policemen's faces, they're calling that which is bad good. And when they try to tell us that it's okay to choose your sex, that you're not born a male or a female, but you can, you can then decide to be one or the other, and you can go surgically have some work done to kind of give you the appearance that you are one or the other. That's calling that which is dark light. That's not true. You, by the way, you can't change a male into a female or a female into a male. If you're a male, you're a male the rest of your life, and if you're a female, you're a female the rest of your life. If you go in and get something cosmetically done to you to give you the appearance that you might be a male if you're a female, or give the appearance that you're a female and you're a male, that's only external. They're not changing you. A male is not getting a uterus when he turns into a female, and a female isn't giving, uh, getting, getting a prostate gland and testicles when she has her surgery. It's all cosmetic. It's sort of like when people try to look younger, and uh, they have various ways to look younger. But their body is still old. They're still going to die at a certain time, no matter how they look on the outside. And the same is true as far as this transgender lie that's being spread. People call good evil and evil good, and people who uh, substitute darkness for light. We're living in that day today, and maybe you're not even aware of the fact of how evil all that stuff is. Read the Word of God. The Bible tells us what's right and what's wrong. Bible tells us we should respect our authorities. Bible tells us that, that male and female, that only males should marry females and only females should marry males. The Bible tells us that. That's no news. Well, the Antichrist is first mentioned in the Bible, by the way, in Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3, this is what it says in verse 15. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed, and he shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. That's God speaking to Satan. I'll put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed, and he shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. This one verse refers to the climax of Satan's attempts to prevent Jesus Christ from ruling on earth. The Antichrist here is your seed, Satan's seed, Satan's offspring, and her seed is Jesus Christ, referring to the child born to the Virgin Mary. In other words, hold on to your seats, the Antichrist's father will be Satan, and he will supernaturally impregnate a human woman, just like the Virgin Mary was 100% human, but was impregnated by God the Holy Spirit. And this is the first prophecy that that's going to take place. That 
Satan's seed will attempt to usurp her seed, the Virgin Mary's seed, Jesus Christ. You see, in order for Jesus Christ to rule on earth, it'll require all living Jews to put their faith in him as Savior. And then they are to plead for him to come back. That's what Jesus said in Matthew 23, beginning at verse 37. Jesus said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, how often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathered her chicks under her wings and you were unwilling. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. For I say to you, from now on, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. When all the Jews in the world united, they say, Jesus, come back. We accept you as our Messiah. That's when he'll come back. But that won't happen until the end of the seven-year tribulation after two-thirds of all the living Jews on earth are killed by the Antichrist, which would be 10 million today if it occurred today. So Satan's method is for, to prevent that from happening, to prevent any Jew from asking Jesus to come back. And how will he stop that? By trying to kill every single Jew. If every Jew is dead, then no, no one's here to ask Jesus to come back and rule this world. And biblical and secular history record five major attempts by Satan to kill all Jews. Four are in the past, and one is still in the future. Five major attempts to kill all Jews. There was Pharaoh of Egypt in 1450 BC. There was Haman of Persia in 475 BC. You remember the story with Esther and Mordecai? There is Antiochus Epiphanes IV of Greece in 175 BC. There was Adolf Hitler of Germany in the 1930s and 40s AD. And there will be one final, a fifth attempt, and that will be by the Antichrist during the last three and a half years of the tribulation. Now, keeping in mind the plan and purpose of the Antichrist, which is to kill every single Jew on planet Earth, Scripture reveals what he's like. Scripture reveals what he's like. What is the Antichrist like? Well, turn with me to Daniel chapter 9, verse 26. Daniel chapter 9, verse 26. And there it says, Then after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off, that's referring to Jesus dying on the cross, and have nothing and have nothing, and the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary, and its end will come with a flood, even to the end there will be war, desolations are determined. What I want to draw your attention to here is that the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city. So the people of the prince to come is the people of the Antichrist. What will be the, the people of the Antichrist? Will he be a Jew or will he be a Gentile? This tells us that he'll be a Gentile. How do we know that? Because his people came and destroyed the city and the sanctuary. That happened in 70 AD. The Romans came in 70 AD and destroyed the temple in Jerusalem. So he is going to be of Roman descent. He will be a Gentile. So we know that. He's not a Jew. He's a Gentile. Secondly, look at verse 27. Just the first 
part of that in verse 27 of Daniel 9. And he, the Antichrist, will make a firm covenant with the many, the Jews, for one week, for one seven-year period of time, for the seven-year tribulation. The Antichrist will have to become the leader of the world for this to happen. And once he's the leader of the world, he will say to Israel, I'm going to protect you because there are other nations here that aren't happy with you. And so let's sign a contract, and I, as a leader of the world, will protect you from all of your enemies. That's why Israel had to be a nation in order for the Antichrist to come into power and in order for the tribulation to begin. Because when he signs that contract, and Israel's leaders sign that contract to allow him to protect them, that's when the clock begins to tick as far as a seven-year tribulation. That's when you start counting seven years. Now, Israel's been a nation since 1948. And so the seven-year tribulation has not begun yet, but it's capable of beginning as soon as a one-world leader comes into power who guarantees the security of Israel. Now, turn with me to another passage that tells us what the Antichrist is like. It's 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Beginning at verse 1. Apostle Paul says this. Now, we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, that's the rapture, that you not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. The day of the Lord is a phrase that means the tribulation. Let no one in any way deceive you, for it, the tribulation, will not come unless the apostasy comes first. The word apostasy literally in Greek means departure. This refers to the rapture. So it says here that the Tribulation can't begin until the departure of the church or the rapture of born-again believers. And again, that's my subject next Sunday in my final message. But it can't take place until the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, that's the Antichrist, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship, so he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. What it says is that during the seven-year tribulation, halfway through the seven years, three and a half years into it, the Antichrist will declare that he is God. And you know what that tells us about the Antichrist? He's a liar. The Bible describes Satan as the father of all lies, so I think it's no surprise that his seed would be a liar too. The Antichrist will be a liar he will say to the world, I am God. I want you to worship me. One final passage here that helps us understand what the Antichrist is like. That's Revelation chapter 13. Revelation chapter 13. And there beginning at verse 1, Apostle John is writing, he says, And the dragon stood on the sand of the seashore. The dragon is Satan. And I saw a beast, that's the Antichrist, coming out of the sea, out of the Gentile nations. That metaphor, sea and seashore, refers to Gentile nations because he's a Gentile from Roman descent. 
having ten horns and seven heads, and on his horns were ten diadems, and on his heads were blasphemous names. He's just the world ruler. And the beast, the Antichrist, which I saw was like a leopard, and his feet were like those of a bear, and his feet mouth was like the mouth of a lion, and a dragon gave him his power, the dragon being Satan, and his thro throne and great authority. And I saw one of his heads as if it had been slain, and his fatal wound was healed, and the whole earth was amazed and followed after the beast, after the Antichrist. And they worshiped the dragon, Satan, because he gave his authority to the Antichrist, the beast, and they worshiped the beast, saying, who is like the beast? Who is able to wage war with him? Who is able to wage war with the Antichrist? Here in Revelation, we see the true nature of the Antichrist. Satan the dragon will cause the Antichrist to imitate Jesus Christ. And how will he imitate Jesus Christ? He will be martyred for his faith. He will be killed, just like Jesus died on a cross. The Antichrist will be killed, and then he'll resurrect from the dead. That's exactly what this passage says. And then once he resurrects from the dead, he will then attempt to murder every single Jew on earth and every Gentile who comes to Christ during the tribulation. This all takes place at the three and a half year mark of the seven year tribulation. Everyone will have to follow the Antichrist. Everyone will have to worship the Antichrist. And the, how will they follow him? They'll have to have tattooed on their top of the back of the right hand or their forehead the number 666, a passport number in order to buy, sell, or purchase. That's to delineate who the Jews are and who the Jews aren't. And real born-again Christians who get saved during the tribulation, because Christians before the tribulation will be raptured, but those who get saved during the tribulation, those who've listened to this message on some kind of podcast during the tribulation and get saved, they will refuse that mark of the beast and their job will be to protect the Jews, to hide them in their homes, to provide them food, and to protect them. You see, there are some Christians, sincere Christians, who believe that the tribulation is taking place now. And so they're moving to isolated areas, they're building fort-like structures, they're loading up on their weapons to protect themselves from the Antichrist. Is that what the Christians are to do if the tribulation was taking place? We're not to hide and fight and shoot. Christians are to protect the Jews from all being annihilated by the Antichrist. That's the goal of the Gentiles, and many of them will be martyred for their faith for doing that. That's why one half of the world's population, which would be four billion people if today, will die during the seven-year tribulation. Many of them will be Christians who are trying to protect the Jews from being annihilated by the Antichrist. And so, in brief summary, let me just say what the Antichrist is like. He's a Gentile, he'll become a world ruler, and he is a murderer. He is a murderer. Thus, the Antichrist will be Satan-controlled and Satan-empowered, whose purpose will be to kill every living Jew. If every Jew is killed, they can't ask Jesus to come back, and this world will belong, as it does today, to Satan. But you know what? The Bible tells us the end of the story. And that's what's nice about the Bible. It only tells us the beginning of the story. It tells us the end. The Bible tells us the Antichrist will fail. Please turn to Revelation chapter 19. There we have the final doom of the Antichrist. Revelation chapter 19, look at verse 19. And I saw the beast, that's the Antichrist, 
and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him, Jesus Christ, who sat on the horse and against his army. So Jesus Christ is making a second coming at the end of the seven-year tribulation. The Antichrist gets his armies together to attack and to kill Jesus Christ, and uh, he doesn't win. Look at verse 20. And the beast, the Antichrist, was seized, and with him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence. You see, there is not only a holy trinity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. There's an unholy trinity, Satan, the Antichrist, and the false prophet, all of them mimicking the true holy trinity. And so it says here in verse 20, by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast. What's the number of that? 666. And those who worshipped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire, which burns with brimstone. That's hell. The first occupants of hell will be... In fact, hell was created not for people who are non-believers. Hell was created for Satan, his fallen angels, the Antichrist, and the false prophet. There are two occupants of it today. And Satan and his demons will occupy it toward the end of the age. Hell was not created for man. But the Bible does tell us that apart from faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, during the final day of judgment, those who don't have faith in Jesus Christ will be sent to hell too. Again, that's not very politically correct, is it? But that's what the Bible says. And God doesn't tell us that to frighten people from becoming Christians. He tells us that to know why we should become a Christian. You see, every one of us is born a sinner, all of us, including this pastor emeritus. And even one sin will send us to hell. And that's why Jesus Christ came 2,000 years ago. A giant rescue mission to save the souls of those who put their faith in him. In verse 6 of John chapter 14, Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Pretty narrow, isn't it? That leaves out every other religion in the world, doesn't it? Sure. But it's not narrow to keep people out. It's narrow so people know how to get in. Let's assume you're lost in the woods. And you see all these little animal trails heading different directions. And you want to know how to get out of the woods. And you don't know which animal trail to follow. But if there's a big neon sign over one of them saying, this is the road that leads out of the woods into safety, you would take the road that's labeled that way. And that's what... John 14, 6 is, it's a big neon sign saying, don't put your faith in all these other religions. Jesus is the one who died on the cross for your sins. Jesus is the one who arose from the dead. Jesus is the one who ascended back into heaven. Jesus is the one who sits on the right hand of the Father as our defense attorney. And you know what? He's never lost a case. And so every time Satan accuses us before God's throne, Jesus as our defense attorney is seated to the right hand of the Father, and he says, I died for that sin. I died for that sin. I died for that sin. I paid the penalty for that one. He's never lost a case. And that's why your heart doesn't have to be troubled. I love what Peter did. Peter said this, it says this about Peter uh, in Acts chapter 4, verse 12. He was being interrogated by the very men who had crucified Jesus just 
days earlier. He expected that these same men would crucify him. And in spite of believing that they would do that, he said this, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. There is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. No other name. He said this to those very men who had crucified Jesus days earlier. Now, they didn't kill Peter then. He eventually would die a martyr's death. But I love what he says there. That salvation is found only in Jesus Christ. That rescue mission took place 2,000 years ago when he died on the cross for our sins and arose from the dead and ascended to heaven. Only Jesus did that. There's no other religious leader who ever did that. Satan and the Antichrist will try to mimic that and copy that during the tribulation, but they will not succeed. And so it does matter what you believe, because if you don't believe correctly, your heart should be troubled. Your heart should be troubled if you don't have faith in Jesus Christ. You have no assurance of heaven when you die. But if you have faith in Jesus Christ, whether you die today or next year or 10 years from now or 100 years from now, you're going to heaven because you have a home there prepared by Jesus himself. If you've never put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, let me encourage you to do that today before you go to bed tonight. In the privacy of your own home, no one else has to know anything about it. Just pray this prayer, Lord Jesus, I believe you're God the Son who became a human being. You lived a perfect life and died on the cross not for your sins because you'd never sinned, but for my sins. And you were buried in the ground to prove you were dead and you rose from the grave three days later to prove you were God and you ascended to heaven 40 days after that. If you believe what I just said, you can say, Lord Jesus, I put my faith and trust in you. I want you to be my Lord and Savior. And then make this book your GPS in life. Read it daily. Obey what it says. And find strength that only it can bring you. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for our time together and for this second message in my series, Let Not Your Heart Be Troubled. And I thank you, Lord, for the hope that it brings in the midst of COVID-19 and six feet distancing and wearing of face masks and breakdown of our economy and riots in our streets. Father, I thank you that in spite of all of that, we have peace and we have hope because our peace and hope is found in you and through your son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen. 